we'll just be reading a few verses. We will return to our study of Revelation next Sunday. Very familiar words from the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lord Jesus, we ask your blessing upon the power of this word. May your servant be faithful and useful as we look at this together. Let us see it with new eyes. Not that there is anything different here, but let us see things that have always been there. Every time we look at your word, we see new light and new wisdom and new truth. It is never ending. And we need it to be nourishing and encouraging. So help us this day, for we are your children. Amen. If you've been paying attention these past few days, I think it was Tuesday night, we had a supermoon, full moon. This is one of those unusual months, and it's the last month until 2037 where we will have two supermoons in the same month. The moon will be at its closest point when it becomes full, coming up over the horizon in its orbit around the Earth. And this second one is coming up on August 30th, since it's the second one in a month, it's considered to be a blue moon. Just a little bit of trivia. Some of you may remember that old song from years ago. Blue moon, you saw me standing alone, without a dream in my heart, without a love of my own. Blue moon, you knew just what I was there for. You heard me saying a prayer for someone I really could care for. And then there suddenly appeared before me the only one my arms would ever hold. I heard someone whisper, please adore me. And when I looked, the moon had turned gold. Some of us are old enough to remember when that was a hit song. It's been some of the oldie goldie favorites list for quite some time. These are what I would consider modern songs and words of romance. We understand them, they relate to us. Catchy tunes help us to remember. And there's nothing wrong with that, as long as they're decent and respectful.
I use that as kind of a beginning because I want to illustrate something. We understand the language from the poetry and the lyrics of modern songs. But when we look at ancient songs, particularly songs in the Bible, we don't always connect. It sounds strange to us. I know you've read the Song of Solomon's. Did they ever make you feel warm and fuzzy? The Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Behold, you are beautiful. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. Doesn't that sound romantic? We are looking at a culture 3,000 years ago, and language then related to some things, some values in their culture that we don't relate to today. Back then, when a man looked at his intended bride or the love of his life, he saw provision and future and blessing. So he's using language that describes her. The wealth of his flocks is beautiful. And it encourages his heart to think of that in relationship to her. So we don't always get that. But it is there. Now when Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount, and we've just read a little portion of it in Matthew 5, the people listening barely knew him, but he was just a carpenter's son. Some say, some people say there had to have been some charisma or charm or why listen to him at all. But Isaiah 53 said he had no form of majesty that we should look at him. There wasn't anything extraordinary about him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. I think that points a little bit more to the description of his sacrifice, his suffering. Maybe not so much about who he, what he looked like. But we do know that Isaiah 53 continues to say that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as for one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So if he wasn't charming, if he wasn't charismatic, if he didn't draw people with his personality, if he lacked anything, why listen to him at all? Well, there's the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Not just through him, but within the lives of those around him. Something, something there, extraordinary, supernatural, was drawing people to hear his message.
When Jesus preached his first sermon, the people listening barely knew him, but he knew them. He knows you. He knows you more than you know him. He knows about you more than you know about him. In Ephesians chapter 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for, for, for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he, with which he blessed us in the beloved. So my friend, he knows you. He's known you. I like what Gar how Garrison Keeler describes it. Long before you were more than the twinkle in your father's eye. He knew you. And he loved you. Not just you, but his church. Everyone who believes him. Everyone who truly trusts him. Everyone who has received him. He knows his church. It is his kingdom. It is his bride. His one and only. So he uses language here. And we've always taken that when we've read this. We've, and heard messages on it. And heard lessons on it. We've always taken that as a challenge of how we should live. And yes, there's some of that here, but I want to also remind you that this is here to encourage us. He talks about, he describes his church, his kingdom, his bride as, you should be salt. I think it is tragic. I, think, I don't think it's very honorable to take, you know, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, let your language be seasoned with salt. And we've always taken that to mean profanity. No. That's not what it means. In ancient times, salt, salt had value. It was, a, it was a very important commodity. Rome used to pay their soldiers with bags of salt. Where do you think the word salary is derived from? It comes from the same root as the word salt. Where do you think the word, the, the phrase, he's not worth his salt, came from? He's not worth what he's paid. Don't give him a job. So salt had value. Christ's bride is one who was valued and is valued. Why? Why does he value his bride? Why does he value his church? Why does he value you? I don't know. His love is mysterious. Why should he love any of us? We are sinners. We are rebel rebels. If he saved any of us, it's usually we come kicking and screaming. 
Deuteronomy chapter 7. Through the prophet Moses, he said, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. His valued possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out, of the, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So very early on in the ministry of Moses, he was telling Israel, you're not so important. There's nothing special compared to everyone else in this world. But I loved you. And I brought you out of bondage for my glory. Because I want you to know you're loved. And that's what he's done through the ministry of his son as well. He has redeemed you by his own blood. He has delivered you from the bondage of sin. And he wants you to know that you are loved. Isaiah 43, Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Since you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. The Lord is saying, I will ransom others in order for you to be free. I will pay, I will turn, turn away others in order that you might have liberty. I don't understand that. But I have to trust that it is in his infinite merciful grace and wisdom that he does this. So when the Lord talks about you are the salt of the earth, he is talking, there's something there we're supposed to do, but there's also this lesson of a people who are valued, someone who is treasured, someone who is loved, someone who has, by his own wisdom, Someone who has, and I say this cautiously, because I'm worth nothing. But through his mercy and through his love, he is saying, my love makes you worthy. I don't understand it. And I don't want to talk like a heretic, so I want to be careful how I say this. But his love brings restoration to our life. 
It brings resurrection to our life. It brings value to our life in that we now are free to give him glory with everything that we do. And that was what was intended from the very beginning of creation. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do we enjoy God? I don't understand that. We love him. We learn to love him. We learn of his word. We value him. Or we try to value, value him as much as he values us. Salt was very valuable. Salt also served a purpose. Salt was used and is still used to preserve food. It prevents decay. It preserves life. You've probably heard another term about salt. Don't rub salt in the wound. That's kind of painful. Those shards, microscopic shards, tend to cut. And it'll make it sting. But if you put salt in water and just dissolve it, you can pour that over a wound and it would offer some... It will offer, they used to use it for healing and soothing. Well, how does that work? I'm quoting a journal here. These are not my words. This is not my science. This is someone else's. About treating wounds with salt. Salt water draws the water from the cells with low salt density and causing bacteria to dehydrate and die. It has a, a, a gradual purifying power to it. Many bacterial strains are salt sensitive because salt dehydrates them and makes it difficult for them to live, grow, or reproduce. But you have to be careful. Some bacteria are halo tolerant or salt tolerant, meaning they can only get stronger as a result of salt exposure. So regularly applying salt onto a wound may help some bacteria to strengthen and invade the area more easily while destroying some other bacteria. So that's why we don't use it anymore. It doesn't, didn't always work. It would help sometimes, but if the wrong bacteria was present, it would just feed it. But the lesson we get out of this that we as his church, as people, are supposed to treat the world with the salt of, his, salt of God's truth. That, that will often produce a spiritual sting that is convicting. It reveals sin. It reveals shame. But you've got to be honest, that is the purpose of the church. We are supposed to bring the word of the great physician to a lost and dying world and say, here's your cancer, here's your sickness, here's your rebellion. By the power of God, by the power of the Spirit, by the power of his word, you can be healed, but you must leave this sin. You must stop this behavior. You must receive Christ as your Savior. These words in Matthew 5 were some of the words Jesus used to describe his bride. You are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, or as the King James says, as salt has lost its savor, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt had a value and it had worth as long as it was strong and pure. When it became diluted or contaminated, it was useless. The only thing good for is throw it out in the street. It'll kill the weeds where we walk, where our carts travel, so we don't have to cut the grass back or the weeds back. You salt the earth, nothing grows. Go out and pour salt in your garden, it's going to kill what's there, and you might not get anything next year. That's why we must never compromise the truth of God's word. The salt that we provide for this world must be pure, it must be true, it must be righteous. We should not offer any kind of compromised truth with the world. It will do no good. We are to call them from their sin to the grace and mercy of Christ. We are not to welcome them in with their sin and their rebellious hearts. That's not, that is polluted salt. That's diluted salt. That will bring no life whatsoever. By his mercy and loving grace, we are redeemed for his glory. We are valued. We have a purpose. We have a mission. We are his kingdom. We are his bride. We are his one and only. The Lord also said, you are the light of the world. The city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But, it's, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. When we read this, we usually read this and understand it as a call to reveal the glory of our Savior, as we should. We should be bold with our witness and with our testimony. But I cannot help but think the Lord is also thinking, look at my beautiful bride, glorious, shining, pure, spotless that's what he's done for us he's cleansed his bride to present him present her before his father pure and spotless without blemish Are we going to stand before this world confident in our Savior's love, confident enough that our witness and our testimony is bold and bright and shining, fearless? Or are we going to cower in a corner like a wallflower, homely, lacking confidence, useless? We are called to be His. We are valued and we are loved. And when he thinks of us, he thinks of us in language that suggests, here's my bride. She brings me glory. She is beautiful. 
And in that, my friend, we should find great confidence and great help. The Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus once wrote, One time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Who'd ever thought that Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, would contain words of spiritual romance? But I think it's in there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word and its truth and its light, and we pray this day that you may remind us of who you are and who we are, and that we may be yours eternally. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.